Let let me make a few comments as you're turning in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. This message on the interpretation of the Word and tomorrow mornings on the application of the Word is a little bit of the nuts and the bolts sort of a thing. It's more teaching than it is a sermon type thing, at least some of it. And this evening's message, we'll see how we get along, but it may extend into tomorrow morning, not straight through. But uh, <laughs> I may cut off the, the interpretation this evening and pick that up a little bit tomorrow uh, before we finish with the application of the Word. I have entered the computer age, but I have not... Uh, taken on, uh, now I'm having a senior moment, you know, uh, the thing you show on the wall, PowerPoint. Uh, I'd rather do other things than to learn PowerPoint or to, when I get done with my sermon or my talk, I don't feel like putting it on PowerPoint yet. So I haven't, uh, I haven't done that and I don't really have a lot of occasions to use PowerPoint uh, this evening would have been helpful, so I'll try to be clear in my outline uh, to, to let you know where, where I'm going with things so that it's try to keep it from just being a muddle in your mind. But let's go to Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which he had made for the purpose, and beside him stood a number of men. Uh, and uh, Ezra, verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, the people stood up. All the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also there was a number of men there who caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. And I think of partly of what was going on here was actually they were probably doing a running translation from uh, Hebrew into Aramaic. Aramaic in the time of Jesus is kind of like the Pennsylvania Dutch that it is in some homes today. It was the, it was the language of, of the home. But these people... Uh, it, the Aramaic was the uh, was the common language at that time. But what I want us to notice here is the emphasis on understanding. Is that there was a, a need for understanding, and people were giving, and so some of that was was in the translating, but it was apparently in the explaining. They was doing understanding. Now, I read a quote from a letter to the editor to the Mennonite World Review. This. Morning, and I have another one to read this evening, 
uh, that would have come out of the Mennonite Weekly Review, now the Mennonite World Review. And uh, there's just a short reading, and it it is uh, it begins this way. And again, I think it is a person who is responding to a previous letter, or perhaps it was an article. Uh, I believe it was a previous letter. As a lover of Scripture who appreciates the complexity of reading ancient literature, I must take issue with Stephanie Moen's interpretation of 1 Corinthian texts in her letter. Is the Bible complex ancient literature that can only be unlocked by specialists? Or was the writer simply a college professor who was positioning herself to debunk biblical interpretation with which she disagreed? And I think it was the latter. In our text, we see the Levites concerned that the people understand the meaning of what was uh, being read. And that's the job today of teachers, of devotional leaders, of fathers, of mothers, of preachers. It's the job of every literate reader of the Bible, Christian, as we read the Bible to try to understand the meaning. And our job isn't finished with interpreting the meaning of God's word. We also need to consider what our response uh, to the meaning of God's word should be and then to put that into practice in our lives. And as we read on here in Isaiah or in Nehemiah, we see that happening is that people came to an understanding and they it changed their lives. Now, understanding and obeying scriptures, the, the matter of interpretation and, and application that we get into tomorrow, is simply understanding the meaning that was intended by God and determining the response desired by God. And that's not a complicated task for the most part. It's not out of reach of the common and untrained man and woman to understand and to obey the Bible. And any attempt to take biblical interpretation away from the hands of the common people and put it only into the hands of the specialists uh, is... Uh, should be avoided like the plague. Nevertheless, the Bible can be mishandled. Uh, Paul urged Timothy to correctly divide, to rightly handle, rightly divide, or to correctly handle the Word of God. And Peter speaks of those who who arrest or distort the teachings of Paul. And so, application, the response that God desires, rightly follows understanding of the message that God that God uh, gave. We can get into trouble by insisting on brotherhood applications with no biblical base or combing through the Bible and seeking a, a shard of support for some application that we want. Uh, our application does not need to be a direct, thus saith the Lord, but it needs to rest on the meaning of Scripture. There needs to be a biblical foundation for the applications that we want to, uh, that we feel is is the response that God would have for us in our time and our setting and so forth. My approach to biblical interpretation or to teaching it is not a long list of complicated rules. Rather, I want to identify four interpretive principles that are rooted in the very nature of, of God's Word and point out some practical implications and guidelines flowing from 
those principles. And so there'll be four main points, and it'll be some subpoints, and and maybe some sub subpoints. But I'll try to keep things clear in your mind if I can. So the first main interpretive principle uh, is this: that we are to interpret the Bible, convinced it is the Word of God and the words of man. Interpret the Bible. Convinced it is the word of God and the words of man. And we've been over, um, at least we've been over, I've been over some of that territory already today that uh, it has to do with the authorship of the Bible. The truth is that the Bible is the word of God and the words of man. And that forms a foundational principle for biblical interpretation. Now, number one under that is this, that the Bible is a divine book. Hebrew says that God hath spoken. In the times past, God spoke through the prophets, and now he has spoken through his son. So who spoke? God spoke. But the Bible also says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? By the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible is a divine book. What difference does that make in interpretation? Well, it makes a lot of difference whether we consider the Bible to be the inerrant, infallible Word of God or whether it's a religious book filled with myths and stories and the evolution of Judaism and Christianity as though it was a uh, a, a religion that just kind of developed uh, in, its, in its way um, and of religious encounters. Is it a the word from God, or is it a history book of the development of some religions? It makes a lot of difference whether the scriptures amount to authoritative information, indoctrination instruction, or whether it's primarily inspirational in nature. That we read the Bible, we get some inspiration, it kind of you know makes us feel good and pumps us up for the day, it's chicken soup for the soul and 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 doesn't amount to too much more than that. Now, we approach fiction differently than nonfiction. And the Bible even moves beyond nonfiction. Uh, the Bible is, has its source and authority in God, and its content makes us wise to salvation. And so we need to interpret the Bible uh, convinced that it is the Word of God in the words of man. First, it is a divine book, but secondly, uh, under my main point one is that the Bible is a human book. Holy men spoke. Uh, holy men of God spoke as they were moved with the Holy Spirit. Now, understanding that the Bible is a divine book, uh, along with the fact, or, or excuse me, that it is a human book, along with the fact that it is a divine book, no longer, no more depreciates its nature or renders it a lesser than the fact that Jesus is human and divine, that that he was both. Now, I'm, I don't know that we should say that the Bible is human and divine in the exact same way that that Jesus was, uh, but it has it is both a divine book, the Word of God, but it's a human book in the words of man. And so what is the significance of the Bible being a human book? Well, having human authorship. And that is simply that God speaks to us through human experience and in human language. And consequently, we interpret the Bible as we do other human language. 
Now, as we move on now to the second point and to the third point, I want to talk about my main points. The second point, we want to draw out some interpretive principles coming from the fact that the Bible is a human book. Uh, now, in saying that, I, you know, we still know that it is a divine book too, but we're looking at the human dimension of the Bible. And then the third point has to do with drawing out some interpretive principles in the fact that it is uniquely divine in a way that other books, other writings are not. So Roman numeral two, interpret the Bible consistent with the rules of human language. And I have four points under that. So interpret the Bible consistent with the rules of human language. Human language was God's idea. Uh, when he revealed himself to man, he didn't, as I mentioned today, he didn't use Holy Greek, he used Common Greek. Uh, but he used Hebrew and he used Aramaic and he used the common languages of the day. Uh, there's a word that is used that we, we can use and we talk about vulgar. And vulgar to us means base. But vulgar really means the, the, the common. And so when I was talking about the Vulgate, uh, that Latin translation, it was not that that Bible uh, used bad language, but it was a language of the common people. And so we can say that Hebrew and Arabic and Koine Greek were the vulgar languages, they were the languages God talked to people in the languages that they really spoke. And so, number one under Roman numeral two of interpret the Bible consistent with rules of human language, one, approach scripture as normal human language. Uh, a big part of correctly interpreting scripture is simply following the same rules we use for determining the meaning for any written communication. And we almost do this instinctively when we read a book, uh, when we read some other document. However, it's possible that when we read the Bible that we bring other interpretive principles that would never, never apply to other forms of human communication. So let's remind ourselves of how we approach normal human language. One, and so I'm, I'm down with little letter A now. Uh, we accept the norm, the ordinary meaning unless there's a comp compelling reason to do otherwise. Uh, another way of saying that is that when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So that's the way we do. You read a book, uh, you read a letter from your wife, your girlfriend back years ago, or, or whatever, um, now, if you read a text, maybe you better apply some different interpretive principles. But you know what I'm saying, that when we read normally, we, we instinctively know how to, how to take that language. Letter B, small letter B, we seek the single meaning generally intended by the author. Now, while it's true that we sometimes speak with double meaning, uh, we have puns or we have some other humor, for example, and the Holy Spirit himself in, in authoring the Bible, maybe there were double meanings uh, as well. Uh, or maybe it almost seems like that sometimes the New Testament authors will take a, a passage and quote a passage from the Old Testament, and it's a little bit more in this sense. See, it's like it says in the Old Testament, but it is not really, it doesn't appear to be the original 
intended meaning of the Old Testament. For instance, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And where do they come from? They come from Isaiah 7. And in Isaiah 7, the context does not appear to be about the virgin birth of Christ. It is a sign to King Ahaz that before certain, certain things, you know, uh, the prophet had said, ask for a sign. And he said, oh no, I'm too spiritual for that. Now he didn't say it that way, but he didn't want to ask a sign. And so the prophet said, Isaiah said, behold, a virgin shall conceive and, you know, certain, certain thing will happen before, before this or however that prophecy developed. Then Matthew picks that up and says, regarding to the due to the uh, virgin birth of Christ, you know, as it says in Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And so, was that a double meaning? Well, at least it was a double application. Uh, the point I'm saying is occasionally there are those connections uh, that the original meaning appeared to be this, but then it's picked up later. And so maybe the Holy Spirit intended that that be a double meaning. But typically... It, that is not rarely, uh, that is not normally the case. Normally, we look for the single meaning um, in, in Scripture. Uh, we don't look at a Scripture and then we allegorize it and moralize it and spiritualize it and literalize it and all that. Seek the, the, single, the single meaning intended by the author. We may not know precisely what the meaning is, and there may be multiple applications, but seek the single meaning unless there are clear reasons to otherwise. All right, now I'm ready for small letter C. We're talking about how we interpret human language. We determine the literary style of the language and the implications for interpretation. Sometimes the news media and others poke fun at conservative Christians uh, for taking the Bible literally. Well, do they want us to take their broadcast literally? Do they want us to take the newspaper literally? Uh, so what's so far out about taking God's word literally? But actually, when we talk about taking it literally, what we mean is it's talking about taking it at face value. To take the Bible literally does not mean that we fail to recognize non-literal, non-literal literary techniques uh, that are in human language, which... Everybody uses, and the Bible writers use as well. I personally uh, shy away from talking about taking the Bible literally. I prefer to talk about taking the literal meaning of the Bible. Um, For example, the Bible contains proverbs, poetry, allegories, fables, parables, and figures of speech, and we, we interpret those, or we should con- interpret those, consider the type of language that they are and interpret those in light of of that particular literary technique to determine its literal meaning. And we don't rush someone with a frog in their throat to the emergency room. And so we we know how to do that. Do we do it in Scripture? So literal language should be interpreted literally. Proverbs should be interpreted proverbially. So when it says, train up a child in the way he should go, what is that? That is a proverb. That is a general statement of truth. That is not a promise. That is in the book of Proverbs. Okay? So that's a special uh, kind of, of, of literature. Allegories are to be taken allegorically. The trees didn't literally anoint a king among themselves. We understand that. Poetry should be taken poetically. Now here we come to a, a bit of a... Did you ever read Psalm 91? 
Did you ever try to preach Psalm 91? I mean, it's got some fantastic promises of protection. And it doesn't seem to really uh, conform to reality, does it? So how do you take Psalm 91 that has that has these tremendous expressions that of, you know, God will, it seems that God will just protect us physically. And uh, you can disagree, you can refute it after a while or whatever, but I think that as we talk about poetic expression, poetic license, and I think there is, I think we need to be careful with that, but I think this is a, we can take this poetically as as David putting confidence in God, David expressing confidence in God's care. And so poetry, I think there is a, a dimension to consider uh, what what is what is happening in in poetry? Proverbs would take pro, uh, uh, parabolically and figurative language figuratively, and so forth. Trees of the field don't literally clap their hands, and so we need to consider the kind of of literature that that we're dealing with. All right, now we're back to number two under Roman numeral two. I have to go back and refresh my own memory where we're at. Roman number one, interpret the Bible consistent with the rules of human language. And so we talked about approach Scripture as normal human language. And that's what we were doing. And now we're talking about consider the historical, physical, and cultural setting. The Bible was written in a specific historical and cultural setting. That fact doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't apply to me because that was in that cultural setting. And because I don't live in that time, rather it means that the Bible deals with real people in real settings, real life situations. It's not a philosophy book. It's not a, a theology book that's, you know, all systematized and organized. But God has given us theology and philosophy and, well, and psychology and all that through real life situations as people lived in particular cultures. And that's what makes the Bible interesting and practical and universally applicable. Man is basically the same as he was since the time of Adam and Eve. And uh, God is the same as well, yesterday and today and forever. And so it don't matter what culture it was. People work through the human nature in whatever culture. Uh, the basic grist of life is the same. And so knowing something of the the historical or the physical or the cultural setting can add both to comprehension and to depth of understanding. So, for instance, let's go to Philippians Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful. Don't worry about anything. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And so when Paul wrote that, he was at home. He just had an abundant harvest. The people had just got saved. And, and uh, you know, he's eating good food. And, of course, anybody can rejoice under those circumstances. It's like I remember... A friend of mine before I was married, and he was going with someone, um, 
uh, someone was moving from Virginia to South Carolina, and they were uh, taking groups down to help build his, his milking barn. And this was a pastor that was moving. And so on the way back to Virginia, uh, this this uh, pastor that was moving was going to preach on the joy of the Lord uh, this next Sunday at his home church in Virginia. And so my uh, someone asked, well, he had asked what he's going to preach about. I guess he said it was on the joy of the Lord. And my friend's comment was this. Well, yeah, he's got high blood pressure. So, you know, anybody could preach on the joy of the Lord if you've got high blood pressure. Uh, well, uh, that, that's, that is uh, not necessarily true, but you get the point. And so was, was Paul just in good circumstances? Was he, was he things going good for him? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, but I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all of the palaces and in all other places. And many of the brethren of the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are a bunch more bold to speak the word without fear. And so when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord, Oi, and again I say rejoice, he was in jail. And so it's just these some of these types of things uh, that you know we consider the the historical or the physical or the cultural setting can uh, perhaps we can say it, it can bring illumination it can change things from 2D to 3D it can bring some light on the subject you know when it talks about Dan to Beersheba well I think we know what what that's talking about it's talking about from one end of Israel to the other. Uh, and so there's there's things like that that you should consider. Now I do want to suggest a caution, and that is well. Let me say something first. I think we need to guard against the tendency to take messages from the Bible rather than the message of the Bible. And so it's possible for us to to narrow down and okay, I like this verse. Or I like this little passage, and we can take the message of that passage, which is really extracted from its context. And and so we are taking this message from the Bible, and that message from the Bible, and the other message from the Bible, and do, do our people know the message of the Bible? Do they know the message of Philippians, or the message uh, of some other some other places? And And so I think we need to... A guard against just uh, atomizing the Bible down into little bite-sized pieces that are not... And sometimes by bringing in a bit of this cultural background or historical background or the setting, if we show where this passage fits in the book, what the train of thought is, and I'll speak a little bit more about that uh, later. But when we're talking about the cultural and the historical background and that sort of thing, I've been in Sunday school classes already where the teacher has spent so much time talking about the cultural setting or the historical setting or the geographical setting that they don't don't get into into the message. Uh, well, they waste too much of the time doing that. And so uh, sometimes that cultural background or the historical background or geogra- geographical background is more for our understanding of the passage than it is to communicate all that information to our congregation. Maybe there's a little bit you ought to communicate, but it's it's a matter of us understanding 
what really is going on. All right, number three, research unclear and important words. Bible translators try to find a word or the phrase that best expresses a biblical word or, or thought, and a good translation usually does a, a good job. However, it's possible to not always convey the, the preciseness or the fullness of what is meant. For instance, the Greek word agape or the Hebrew word shalom, uh, it, it can have maybe a fullness that is not really captured in, in one uh, English word. Or, for instance, uh, the, the significance of repentance in the Old Testament versus significance of repentance in the New Testament. It, perhaps Old Testament is more turning back, turning back to God, and in New Testament is a little bit more uh, a change of mind. And so sometimes that, that nuance can get lost in translation because, well, who wants to read the uh, Amplified Bible uh, all the time, if you read it at all? And so uh, that uh, you get the point. Well, there's also words like propitiation that, uh, you know, to do a word study on that, to understand a little little more what the meaning actually is. Also, depending on the the, uh, translating approach, as as Brother Eric mentioned, whether it's formal equivalent or functional equivalent, translators, uh, translators may occasionally or may frequently... Um, translate for meaning rather than what may be a more ambiguous literal translation. The value in that is that people uh, who through their scholarly preparation should generally uh, have a better understanding of what that word really means is helping you to understand it, helping the reader to understand it. The disadvantage of that is that they are making a judgment call in some cases. And so you, you've kind of got a, 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 um, unless the, unless it is footnoted, you, you may not know what's going on. Now, uh, there's a girl in our community who, uh, her roots are up here in the cold country. She was a script set. And she, uh, was doing sign painting, making signs. And I gave her a bunch of old wood I had, and I had a, 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 some wood, and I wanted her to make a big sign for in my pecan barn. And I wanted to put on Psalm 19.14. So go to Psalm 19.14. And I actually had her to, I wanted to hang it on the wall. I wanted to hang it on the wall. And so I actually had her to do it in the New King James and which is practically identically identical, I think, to the to the older King James. <clears throat> and so it says in Psalm nineteen, verse fourteen, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. And she made the sign and she had hardly made the sign and I got it up and it wasn't there very long or within the year. And I wish there was a way for her to go back and redo it. Well, she has since moved to Idaho, but I don't know how 
to, to get her to, to, to get that done because the King James made a, the translators made a, an interpretive decision. That word really is rock. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And the King James translators in this case decided that rock meant strength. Well, now, really, does it or doesn't it? Uh, does it mean firmness? Does it mean foundation? Does it mean strength? What does it mean there? And so, in this case, the NIV is actually more literal because it's what it says, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, we're talking about word studies. Uh, how do you pick up on this type of thing? You know, if you... There's two ways to do it. One way is is if you're, you know, you use Strong's or something and going down through there and checking all this stuff out, or if your Bible is footnoted or center referenced, or if you use a very literal translator, translation, and that will alert you a little more. And one of the better to use, perhaps, uh, and more consistent to pick that up is the New American Standard. Uh, Bible. One of the accusations against the New American Standard Bible was that it was so literal that it did not read well in English. And since, uh, in, in uh, I'm not sure, 1995 or something like that, they did a revision, perhaps worked on that. But the New American Standard is probably more consistent in its interpretation. The, the King James, and I'm not here trying to bash King James, uh, the King James, I think, purposely tried to use uh, a broader selection of words and all that, so it's not quite as consistent in, in its interpretation or in its translation. Uh, so if you want to pick up a little bit more on, on you know, whether there's a word that a judge that someone is translated for meaning instead of what the word literally said, the New American Standard might help you uh, with that. Now, I want to do give a word of caution, and that is that while word studies have value, they have their limitations and, and pitfalls. Words aren't ends in themselves. They're just building blocks. They're like the cement blocks you use to build a building with. And so don't get carried away, so carried away about a word's range of meaning. For instance, the English word draw. Uh, you know, Greek words, they might have a range of meaning, but think about the range of meaning of draw. To draw a picture, draw the curtain, draw a bucket of water, draw a chicken, draw a pistol, draw flies, all those things. And so if somebody could say, do you know what the word draw means? Oh, I'm just fascinated with what the word draw means. Well, you know, but what does it mean in its context? And so you can look at the Greek word and say, oh, this is what the Greek word means. Well, what does it mean in its context? Uh, so... Uh, it is just a basic building block, and we need to see how it is used in, as part of the sentence and as part of the paragraph. Number four, examine and respect the context. Context is king. You know, one habit that people who love and obey the Bible have uh, that is sometimes criticized is called proof texting. Now, a proof text is fine if it is in context. And if, if in context it truly says and means what we're using it to teach and prove, if not, then a proof text is justly criticized. Someone said that a text out of context is a pretext. And so uh, we need to make sure that what we're saying really is what it is saying 
and context. Politicians sometimes engage in a different angle on this in that they, uh, on the same problem, they take their opponent's words out of context to make them say what they didn't in- intend to say. Well, maybe that's not a different angle after all. Uh, does uh, Titus 2, 3 to 4 indicate that young women should not teach a class with older women in it? Uh, does Philippians 3.16 teach uniformity? And how about this one? Does Leviticus 13.45 teach against the mustache? That the person who has uh, leprosy is supposed to cover the upper lip and say, unclean, unclean. I kid you not. Uh, there was a pastor I had who used that no offense to any of you use that, but uh, is that what that's teaching in context? You know, whether you have a position against the mustache or whatever, the point is, uh, what is the teaching in context? So often the best way to respect the context is to begin with the purpose of the author, the message of the author of the book, as a whole, try to understand the author's argument. Uh, uh, the people who, who wrote Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they weren't just spouting out words. It wasn't just random thoughts. Well, yeah, there is the, the Proverbs, but they were making an argument in the right sense of the word. They, they were carrying a thought forward. And so what is the subject? And what is he saying about the subject? And, and what is going on here? And so that verse... What is it saying in its context that, that will help us? Now, 1 Corinthians 8. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. And there we're talking about context. Context is king, but considering the context. And so what is 1 Corinthians 8 about? Now it's touching things as offered under idols. We know that we have all knowledge, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffed up, but charity edified. And on it, it talks there about that. And then let's go to chapter 10, verse 24. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, uh, in the shacks, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake, uh, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast and you'll be disposed to go, whatever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it. Okay, is there a connection between the first part of chapter 8 and the, first, and the last part of chapter 10 and all that is together? Does that all form a unit? of thought or does it not you know we know that that 1 Corinthians 12 13 and 14 consist of a unit of thought there is a progression of argument there and and, and so that that holds together now we don't need to preach that all together but just back to this i heard someone give a short message one time and he tied this all together and it has to do with dealing with debatable things and so the immature response is, is it forbidden? 
So he took that from the first few verses of chapter 8. The mature response is, is it fruitful? And so he said, consider people, the rest of chapter 8. Consider priorities. And that had to do with with uh, at least part of chapter 9 that Paul says, uh, you know, I don't take away, I don't take a wife along with me. I don't have a wife. The other apostles do, Peter and, and them, but I don't. I don't take a support from, from you, uh, from a church. He took, he took support sometimes. He said, I have a right to receive a support. Uh, but I don't because I don't. And so he was saying, uh, things that he, he denied himself because he gave priority to, to serving God. And these things stood in a way. He, he uh, denied himself his comfort zone. We all have this comfort zone we live in that, you know, food we like and, and the clothes we wear and all. But he says, when I was the Jews, I, I followed their scruples. And when I was these people, I followed their scruples. And he did this. Uh, he lived outside of his comfort zone uh, for priorities. And then the last part, consider purity. And so it talks about how uh, Israel, uh, you know, lusted after evil things. And when you eat sacrifice, when you eat sacrifices, you're actually it is a if it is knowingly that you're eating this meat in a in a religious uh, setting, you are participating in fellowship with those people. Just like the communion is more than than drinking the cup and eating bread, we it is a spiritual experience. And so if you knowingly are eating meat sacrificed to idols with people who are having a, a, a uh, pagan uh, religious experience, you are entering into fellowship with that. And he talks about, you know, not, uh, well, there's different things in there, but you see how that can all hold together. And so there's some clues there. Now, was that really Paul's intent that all, that all be... Uh, an argument together? I don't know. But it just opened that passage up for me in, in a tremendous way. And so that's again a, a going back on the thing. Don't just uh, go to messages from the Bible, but what is the message of the Bible? What is the argument that is being carried forward and how does it, how does it all tie together? Uh, let, what what is the cutoff time here? Like seven thirty? Is that is that what it is? Oh, okay. We're to Roman numeral three. We we've been talking about uh, some interpretive aspects in light of the fact that the Bible is a human book. It is written in human language, and so we interpret that as we interpret other human language. But now we want to think about the fact that that the Bible is. Unique. Interpret the Bible in light of its uniqueness as God's inspired word. Interpret the Bible in light of its uniqueness as God's inspired word. You know, we do wrong to think we can dissect and manipulate the Bible in the ways we would never do with a history book or a love letter. Consequently, we do need to interpret it according to its historical context by the normal rules of grammar. 
and that is called the grammatico-historical method. But we believe and confess that the Bible is unique since fundamentally and ultimately as the Word of God, God is the author. And so does that have any particular bearing on how we understand the meaning? Well, let's talk about a few things. Uh, The one is, number one, the Bible is the progressive revelation of God's Word and will. The Bible is the progressive revelation of God's Word and will culminating in Christ in the New Testament. The Bible is the progressive revelation of God's will, word and will, culminating in Christ in the New Testament. And what this does is this gives us a an interpretive framework. The two parts of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are not simply a part A and part B or scene one and scene two. The, the division between the Old and the Two really do uh, represent a continental divide. It's a real watershed. And, and I talked about of that today. I'm not going to spend much time talking about that. But the old was preparatory for the new. And uh, the old gives us a knowledge of redemptive history from the creation to the fall to the choosing of Abraham and working through uh, his descendants in, in preparing the world for, um, for the coming of Christ. And uh, it is now fulfilled. It is obsolete as a religious system. And again, if, if I'm mistaken here, you can talk to me about it, but I, I, I would express it this way, that Judaism was the mother that gave birth to Christianity. Not in a naturalistic sense, not in a sense that it, was, that it evolved naturally, but in God's design and sovereign will, he prepared Judaism, which gave birth to Christianity. And then Judaism had fulfilled its, its role in, in God's uh, plan. Christ is the focus of the Old Testament in the sense that it was to him that the Old Testament uh, scriptures and history was pointing and moving. And we see that uh, in the Bible. He's the focus of the New Testament in the sense that it not only records his life and teachings and death and resurrection, but also the New Testament interprets interprets the significance of the work of Christ for us individually and for the church through the apostles, through the epistles. In Christ and the New Testament, God's revelation reaches its fullness and completion. Uh, It expresses the definitive terms of God's will. You have heard it have been said, but I say unto you. And so we have a, a completion. Uh, we have a, a definitive expression of, of God's will. In the past, God winked at this. But now he calls all, all, to, all to repentance. Moses permitted this uh, because of the hardness of your hearts. But now, and so uh, in interpreting the Bible, we do see that progression. Uh, it is a... It is because the Bible is is divine. It, it is perhaps we can say it is a unique thing in interpreting the Bible that we understand that it is a it is a divine uh, progression of of revelation. Secondly, the Bible. Thinking about now the the fact that of any special interpretation because it's the it's the it's it is divine. The Bible is true in all its parts and unified in its message. 
And again, I spoke to that uh, a bit today, that, that there is unity. Uh, the, the unity of the Testaments is a unity in redemption. Chronologically and theologically, the Bible is a united story of redemption. Uh, it begins in the first uh, 11 chapters of, of Genesis, and it talks about the need of salvation, the need of redemption, and then the choosing of Israel as a channel of, of redemption. And then incidentally, in the intertestamental period, uh, this is not biblical history, but in there, God was preparing the world. There was a preparation for redemption. There was the Roman peace and the road system and the language. And so God was preparing people for the coming of the Redeemer. And so in the Gospels, then we have uh, the, the coming of, of the Savior or the purchase of redemption. And then we have in the Acts the proclamation of redemption. And in the Epistles, the explanation of redemption and in Revelation, the culmination of redemption. And so there is that storyline that goes uh, through through the entire Scripture. There is that unity in storyline. Uh, we would be missing the story if we only picked up at the New Testament. We wouldn't understand uh, what God was doing in terms of, of developing that redemptive plan and progression. But there's also, as I mentioned today, that unity of... Unity of um, being right with God. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. I mentioned uh, this morning about Noah and Abraham both being justified by faith. But look at this. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will punish all them that are, which are circumcised with the uncircumcised, I will punish all them which are circumcised with the uncircumcised. And as he will punish those who are outwardly his people, but really are not in the heart. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the children of Ammon and Moab and all that are in the utmost corners that dwell in the wilderness, for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. And so there is that continuity of the Old Testament and New Testament of heart religion. Because uh, since the Bible is true and unified, we can compare Scripture with Scripture to illuminate uh, the meaning of each passage and ascertain the greater fullness of truth. The more obscure passages should be interpreted in the light of the, of the more clear ones. And no passage of Scripture will be contradictory in any way when properly interpreted and understood. It is a divine book, and so there's no contradiction. Uh, any contradictions that we see in interpretation are apparent and not real. Uh, we haven't. Uh, it's it's our fault of understanding rather than somehow another God was contradictory because there's unity in the scripture. All right, now we're talking about 
We're talking about the special interpretive principles or in light of that it's a human book, a, a divine book, I'm sorry. And so there's one other thing, and I don't know that I have a lot to lose here, and so I'll just go ahead with it. The Bible contains predictive prophecy, which is often couched in figurative language. Is that something a bit unique, or it is a divine book? And I want to talk about, I'm not planning on going into depth, but I'd like to offer a few personal thoughts of a general nature which may leave you dissatisfied if you're highly committed to one interpretive scheme or the other. Okay, so under this, this will be back to a small letter A, remember the multiple purpose of prophetic scripture. And I've got four points under that. You know, we can go astray in our interpretation if we approach prophetic scripture for the wrong reasons or put the emphasis where the Bible does not put the emphasis. And so what, why did the Bible give prophetic scripture? Well, for one reason, to motivation in holy living. Uh, you know, one of the first things when we think about, when you think about prophecy and future things is, uh, you know, well, what's it say about the future? And that's probably putting the emphasis at the wrong place. Uh, someone has said that the purpose of prophetic truth is not speculation, but motivation. And so you have First John, and you have uh, Peter, seeing that these things shall be what manner of men, what manner of people should we be? And he who has this hope purifies himself. And so think about that. Uh, we may not understand everything about, about predictive prophecy, but we can understand enough to know uh, that it ought to uh, be, be purifying us, that it needs to be motivating to holy living. A second thing is we're thinking about uh, we're thinking about the, the multiple purpose of prophetic scripture is fortification through the difficulties of life. You know, one of those difficulties has to do with death and future life, and so we have First Thessalonians four and five, and First Corinthians fifteen. Another has to do with suffering, uh, suffering and persecution resulting from hatred from Satan and his world. Uh, and so we have revelation, and whatever the message of revelation really entails, the, the overall thing is we win as Christians. We win. And so it, it can fortify us in the difficulties of life. A third thing is that the confirmation of the validity of Christian faith. Fulfilled prophecy authenticates the source of the prophecy. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 41. Verse 23, we could also look at uh, Deuteronomy 18.24, or, uh, but let's go to Isaiah 41.23, and here um, God is talking about, you know, what he will do with Israel or something of that nature. And then he says in verse 20, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of God hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Produce your cause, saith, saith the Lord, or present your case. Bring forth your strong, strong reason, saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth. Bring forth your idols. And show what shall happen. Let them 
show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Bring forth your idols and let them predict the future. Show the things that are to come hereafter that we may know that ye are gods. Let them predict prophecy that we can know that they're gods. And so when we have predictive prophecy and the prophecy is fulfilled, it gives us confidence in the source. And who is the source? God is the source. And so prophecy offers a confirmation of the validity of, of Christian faith. John 13 Verse 19. Now I tell you before, now I tell you before it come, and Jesus predicting his his um, betrayal. Now I tell you before it come that when it come to pass, you may believe that I am He. And so he, he predicted something as a confirmation that when it came to pass, it, it would strengthen their faith. A fourth uh, purpose of prophetic scripture is preparation for the future as God's redemptive plan continues to unfold. Does God ever simply, uh, does God ever give us future information simply to satisfy our curiosity? I'm not sure. However, Scripture does record future events of when prophecy was given with specific instructions and warning. So he says in Luke, when you see these things happen, do so and so. Now maybe that was a prophecy that, that occurred when uh, with the fall of, of Jerusalem. Um, but sometimes God does give prophecy and say, when you see this, and so... Um, Prophecy is given for preparation for the future. And even if we don't fully understand uh, some prophetic things, um, it, it, we can be prepared spiritually, knowing that God is going to bring things to, to a conclusion. All right, now I'm back. We're talking about the Bible containing predictive prophecy. Small letter A was remember the multiple purpose of prophetic scripture. B, take the passage in its most simple, direct, and ordinary meaning unless there are compelling reasons to do otherwise. Um, You know, if we don't begin with the ordinary meaning of language, then as a starting point, then language suffers from the threat of losing its objectivity. And so interpretation can become extremely subjective. To each interpreter attempting to append a meaning to words as, as they want, uh, if you're not going to take them in the ordinary direct sense, so take th- that is the starting point to take it in your ordinary direct sense, unless there's some compelling reason to do otherwise. And so C is recognize compelling reasons to temper the literal interpretation of prophecy. And under that, I've got a few points. Uh, the first point under that is that the extensive use of figurative language in prophetic passages. Uh, we know that is. And so rather than making the absurd be literal, we try to determine the literal meaning of what is expressed in a figurative way. For example, when it talks about Satan being bound with a chain, uh, in my understanding, the literal meaning of that is that Satan will be restrained. Now, you know, what time period is that talking about? Well, I don't want to get into that. But we're talking about the literal meaning of something that is figurative. The chain is a word picture to help us see 
that restraint. Uh, if you just take the predictive uh, thing of, of Pharaoh's dream, we're talking about the skinny cows eating the fat cows and the ears of corn and all. Well, taking that literally is, is absurd. But it, was, it had a literal meaning. It was in figurative language with a literal meaning. We should also recognize that we might not always be able to, under, to determine whether something is to be taken literally or to be taken figuratively. Is the description of heaven in Revelation 21 to be taken literally or figuratively? Well, I'm not here to say. But rather than to be dogmatic about some of these things, when we're, when we're talking about the prophetic scriptures, I think that it's better to uh, tease out the concepts, to understand the concepts of, of what is being talked about, whether they're being expressed literally or figuratively. For instance, in Revelation 21, uh, you can talk about the, ad, the adequate size. Uh, or the astonishing beauty, or the absence of sin, or that type of thing. There's concepts there that whether it is exactly four square, or whether it is you know a cube, or whether it is actually streets paved with gold, or what or not, there are there are truths to be had that I don't know is that uh, that that teaching can be brought without having to really resolve the issue of whether this is actually literal or whether this is, is to be taken in a figurative sense. I once heard John Ruth, um, and some of you are aware of him, a man that I think is worthy of significant respect, but he was giving a message, and he, he was a college professor of, of literature, an English professor, and so this kind of fell down his line, but he gave a, he gave a message and he talked about three rivers, and I, it, it picked my interest. Uh, he talked about the river in Eden, and the river in Ezekiel, and the river in Revelation. And his, uh, he, he gave the spiritual application, I believe, to the stream of Christian faith, to the stream of, of spiritual life. And it was intriguing, but it seemed to me that that what really happened in that sermon was that he really he simply used biblical imagery to convey an idea. I'm not sure that it really unfolded the meaning of the text. And so, you know, just to take biblical imagery and go with it where you want to go, I'm not sure that that's being true to the text either. It's a very subjective approach to interpretation. Recognizing compelling differences to temper the literal interpretation of prophecy. So one under that was extensive use of figurative language. Number two, sometimes is sometimes surprising ways the New Testament handles Old Testament prophecy. On one hand, some Old Testament prophecies was, so uh, where did they go to find out where Jesus was going to be born? That was the literal interpretation that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so we say, well, that was, that was literal. On the other hand, uh, out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, th- well, that really was not, that was one of those virgin birth sort of a things. That it, it was not in its original context. It was referring to Egypt coming out. It was not talking about Jesus coming out. And so, on one hand, the New Testament itself interprets prophecy literally, and it interprets it 
perhaps somewhat figuratively. Maybe that puts us all into despair. But uh, Jesus, the New Testament can do that because Jesus is God and the authors are under inspiration of God, but we don't always know how to cut the cake to, to make all that work out. But we should be careful neither to take liberties with the text nor to be dogmatic that there are no other meaning other than the ordinary literal one. What I'm saying is that those who are given to a, a more figurative or spiritual interpretation, well, maybe there is some literal meaning there, and those who are given to a more literal meaning, well, maybe there is some spiritual meaning there. I think it's, it's an area that we can have some care. And I've got one, one more point under this, and that is uh, we need to consider the conditional aspects of some prophecies. Some declarations of God are given in such a way that seem unconditional, yet later we find them to be conditioned. And so while we may not always know which prophecies are conditional and which are not, the knowledge that some prophecies may be conditional, uh, conditioned by man's response should add an element of caution and interpretation. Now I'm going to quit here. Uh, we have one more major point. That would be Roman numeral four is interpret the Bible conscious of human limitations. And we'll draw that out a little bit tomorrow morning, Lord willing, and then move into application.